Well, as I said, I was praying last night and I really felt the Lord just said, hold off doing Hebrews chapter 12, which is just a fantastic chapter. There's so much in it. If you've been reading ahead, I hope you're not too disappointed that we're doing it this morning. But I just really felt the Lord say that we should do something slightly different because this is a day that traditionally we celebrate. But we're going to just kind of ask a few questions and then look at what the scripture says about these things and then maybe next week we'll kind of build on this a little bit further uh, and then we'll return to our last couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews to continue that. So as I said we celebrate Palm Sunday each year you know but again what is the real significance of this day? Why is it that this day is one of the most important days recorded in the Bible? Now I'm not sure whether you realized it was but it is uh, and we'll look at some of the detail behind that. So the question then we want to ask is, what actually makes this day stand apart? What is it that just separates this day from the others in Scripture? Now, it's interesting that in Scripture we find a number of people in the Old Testament spoke about this. Zechariah and Daniel prophesied about this day over 500 years before it happened. Now, if that on its own weren't impressive enough, David spoke of this day around about a thousand years before the event. But Moses spoke prophetically of this day nearly one and a half thousand years beforehand. You know, and the challenge is just to think of any other day in history like this. You know, think of any other day that has got this kind of attention given to it. Uh, And I suppose to put it in context, think of an event on a specific day that's going to happen 500 years from now. I mean, you couldn't. I mean, it'd be it'd be crazy. We have no idea what the world would even be like at that point. And if we said, well, what about a thousand years? I mean, it, it, look at where we've come uh, as a society, as a world in the last 1,000 years. Look at the increases in technology, even in the last 100 years. And if the Lord tarries, what will the changes be? What will happen? What will the world be like? And even if the Lord, and when the Lord does come back and sets up his millennial kingdom, try and imagine a specific day. It's beyond the realm of human ability to do so. So this again reminds us that God is outside of time uh, and he's revealed the future before it happens. Now, again, that's to, to serve as undeniable proof of his existence. Now, in the Bible, God speaks uh, through direct specific prophecy and also through types and shadows. You know, the details of Passion Week, as we refer to it, that's the week starting effectively today and leading up to next Sunday being the the day we celebrate the resurrection. Uh, The details of Passion Week were recorded over a thousand years again before the events took place. In fact, if you go back to the time of Moses, really where they they are recorded, we find it's about 1500 years. And and we know even before that, the time of Abraham speaks prophetically 2000 years beforehand of these things. And the way that the Lord speaks, is things like through the feasts of Israel, through the Messianic Psalms, of which there's a number, but also through the Old Testament prophecies, of which there's many, particularly, again, we could cite right from Genesis 3.15 all the way through 
to the end of the Old Testament, there are many, many prophecies that speak of the time that we're about to, to look at and study, this time of Passion Week, and specifically in context of today, this day that we remember as Palm Sunday. Now, I would just say that Palm Sunday is one of the very few days that we remember from a traditional point of view that actually occurred on the day in question. A lot of the, the things that tradition has passed down uh, were not necessarily true. So, for example, we know that um, although we celebrate Good Friday, as it's often referred referred to the actual day of the crucifixion was on the Thursday we'll talk about that maybe a little later and particularly more on our communion celebration on Thursday but if I can just draw your attention uh, again to Isaiah chapter 46 verses 9 and 10 there we're told there remember the former things of old for I am God and there is none else I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Just in the middle of that verse, we have that statement that God declares the end from the beginning. Now, this is something that nobody in the world could do. Of course, there's various predictions about things that may happen and people try and have uh, you know, this is so-called uh, fortune tellers, for example, and people that uh, have a guess at what might come to pass but nothing with the accuracy, with the detail uh, that we find in Scripture. And once again, as we said a moment ago, the Bible and God speaks through direct, specific prophecy, which is history recorded in advance. I've said a number of times before that prophecy is not prediction. That That's what the world tries to do sometimes. And we've said, but we, we try and predict the weather or whatever. And we use various criteria and some, some science and some information to try and help us do that. But the Bible is very different. The Bible is recording things that have not yet happened, but for God who's outside of time, he records them as if they have happened. God is able to, to show us these things through these types and shadows that we see. That's simply an event that anticipates something that is yet to occur. It's a model, if you like, in advance uh, of the reality. In the book of Hosea, Chapter 12, we're told, I have spoken by the prophets, the Lord making that declaration, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. What is a similitude? Again, it's a model in advance. We've got the likes of Adam and Eve. It's a beautiful picture of Christ and the church. Timothy reminds, or Paul reminds Timothy as he writes to him in First Timothy of that, that we're told that although Eve fell into sin, as it were, Adam willingly chose, he knew what he was doing. Now, we see the same model there with Christ rescuing his church. Jesus stepped into this world. He became sin for us so that he could redeem and save us. And there's a beautiful picture with Adam and Eve in the same way. Again, we mentioned a little while ago the situation with Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 22, 24, so many parallels in that passage. Uh, not least the fact um, that uh, we see Abraham potentially offering up his son at the very place Jesus would later be offered up by his father as a sacrifice for sin and again receiving him back as it were three days later as God allows him to walk away and he says uh, that God will provide himself a lamb and all these things that point through to the ultimate fulfillment which took place at Calvary. 
And there's many other pictures in there, these similitudes, these types, these shadows. Joseph, there's over a hundred ways that we see that he was a type of Christ, just a model of Jesus. There's no sin recorded of Joseph um, that we could point to. He was rejected by his brethren and then exalted to the highest place, uh, sitting at the right hand of the majesty. You know, those kind of pictures we see of Joseph. Jonah, of course, three days, three nights, many parallels. And then the Feast of Israel. And that's really what we want to spend a few minutes just, just looking at reviewing. In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, Paul there says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or holiday, as we we now refer to it, a holy day, um, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Now, the Sabbath days, we'll look at that in in a second, doesn't just refer to the Saturday for the Jews. They had 70. We'll talk about it in a second. But we're told that which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ or the fulfillment, the substance. So you think of a shadow. You think of, you know, standing outside a beautiful sunny day outside at the moment. If you were to go out and you were to stand there, you would see your shadow. And it's kind of a representation of you as you stand there and the sun shines on you. But it's not anywhere near what the real substance is. And of course, this is what we find with these models in the Old Testament. They point towards, they give you an indication of the real thing, but they themselves are not able to fully convey just how wonderful the real thing is. So when we look at the Sabbath days, uh, Israel had 70, according to the law of Moses. There was 52 weekly Sabbath, Shabbats, on the, the starting at the sundown on the Friday, going through to sundown on the Saturday. Uh, there were seven days that were allocated for Passover. This is the time of year that we're remembering at the moment. And the Jews soon will be celebrating their Passover. Uh, there was a day uh, for the Feast of Pentecost. There was another day for the Feast of Trumpets. There was a day for the Feast of Atonement. There were seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles. There was uh, another day it was referred to the eighth day of assembly, uh, particularly significant in John's Gospel. All of that adds up to 70 days. Uh, and they were based upon a lunar calendar, the lunar cycle, the moon. Now, these are the, the feasts that we have. Okay, so um, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits. They're the ones we're, we're kind of specifically interested in this study. Uh, and then we have the uh, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And we'll do maybe a separate study uh, on Pentecost this year, um, looking at just the significance of the, the, the Mosaic Feast that was under the law and how that applies to the church. It's fascinating. Uh, you see the fulfillments there. And then those last three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, Atonement and Tabernacle, all that which will seem to have their fulfillment during the time of tribulation that is to come and i believe the book of joel uh, is a, a model in a sense in advance of those three feasts being fulfilled we could talk about that some other time well we read uh in exodus uh it says in the 14th day of the first month at even is the lord's passover and on the 15th day of the same month Uh, We're told it is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then it says uh, that in the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord seven days. And in the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. What that means is no work for which remuneration would be received. So there was certain work that was permitted uh, on their weekly Sabbaths and so on. Um, but other work was, was absolutely banned. So um, some of the Sabbaths, they, they could prepare food. Uh, other days, they were just to do nothing at all. So and again, notice that it's a 14th day is when the Passover occurs. 
the 15th day, the next day, uh, again, it's referred to specifically as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, don't want to confuse you here because you will, if you read scripture, find this phrase, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, used a number of times. Sometimes it's in reference to the 15th, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Other times it's in reference to the Festival of unleavened bread, which was a seven-day period where they weren't to eat uh, bread with leaven during that whole period of time. Um, so you need to be very careful as to which one of those it's referencing. Um, but just to give you some clarity, sometimes it refers to the 15th specifically, which was a separate feast day. Other times, the whole period, the whole festival is uh, referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because again, for the whole of that time. Once again, no servile work uh, was to be done on the first and the last day of this period. Okay, so the first day, the last day, um, they were to not do any work at all, for which remuneration would be required. But that does mean significantly that they could go and prepare food, and we'll see that played out uh, in the details. Let's just carry on. So these are verses from Leviticus 23. We carry on. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, When you become into the land which I give unto you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priests. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So we're given details of when this feast of first fruits is to occur. It's to be on the morrow or the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. So this is when this feast would occur on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. So whenever the Passover would occur, which would always be the 14th of the month, whenever the Passover would occur, we'd wait for the next Shabbat, the next Saturday Sabbath, and then the next day would be the Feast of First Fruits, which means it would always be on a Sunday. So again, these are the feasts. Passover will be on the 14th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th, and then the Feast of First Fruits on the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover. And again, as I mentioned a moment ago, that will always be on a Sunday. Now, in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, Paul tells us the, the, what the gospel is. Uh, and he says that the gospel is, let me just read to you from from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And Paul declares to us, just gives us this great summary. He says the gospel is this. Um, I delivered unto you first of all how um, that which I received also how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and how that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures that's all hidden in a sense in these feasts the gospel according to the scriptures this, this gospel that we preach is laid down in this model that we have in the Feast of Israel. So the Feast of Passover, it foreshadows Christ's sacrificial death. We'll look at it in, in a moment. Then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and his burial particularly is, is symbolized by that. And then the Feast of First Fruits, First Fruits, which speaks of his resurrection. Now, jumping back to Exodus there we find Moses is told to speak unto speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, "In the tenth day, okay, notice that if you make a note of that mentally, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house." Why is that tenth day significant? Well, we're going to go on and see that that tenth day 
is what in the year that Jesus was crucified was Palm Sunday, that 10th day. Very significant. We'll look at the detail in a moment. But we're told more about this sacrifice. The lamb had to be without blemish. It had to be a male from the first year. And it was to take it from the sheep or from the goats. And notice in verse 6, you should keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now the word in in the Hebrew is a word bayan, and it literally means between. So actually the way we would understand this is that the children of Israel were to kill this sacrifice between the evenings. So they have a 24-hour window in which to offer this Passover sacrifice. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and upon the upper, upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat. Of course, we know the the way this was played out in Egypt. Carry on to verse 11. And it says, And thus shall you eat with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You know, we know that with the uh, uh, plagues that were brought upon Egypt, each one of them was to debunk the idea that these separate gods that Egypt had had any power whatsoever. Every plague was directed against one of these so-called gods that they had. It's interesting, you know, uh, just for uh, pausing for a second, that this situation we're in. Uh, I was listening to a, a post uh, that Joy was was listening to the other night uh, on Facebook as a lady in America. But she was asking, you know, is this a judgment from God? And it was quite interesting because she's saying, well, I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. But we certainly deserve judgment from God. But look at all the things that God is hitting. God is hitting all the things that we worship instead of him. Sport has been hit really hard. No sporting events are taking place, you know, and for so many, that is their religion. It's a God to many people. Well, God is bringing judgment on that. You know, for many people, they worship their finances and God is bringing judgment upon that through this situation. You know, all of the, the social lives that people have, uh, things they would they typically do of their weekends and evenings. You know, God is striking all of those things. And through this coronavirus, we're seeing God, in many senses, bringing judgment against all the things that people worship and hold dear. Um, again, we'll, we'll get to it in our study in Hebrews, but we're told that there will come a time, and I believe that we are right in it, where there will be a shaking. And the Lord is going to shake everything so that that which remains will simply be that which is of God. So again, very fascinating times that we're in at the moment. And we're told, verse 13, that the blood shall be unto you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Interesting, isn't it? God speaking about bringing plagues upon the land, but again, looking after his own. Uh, Exodus 4, again, uh, okay, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And this was why God brought those plagues on Egypt, because he saw that Israel were, as it were, being abducted, um, kidnapped by Israel, uh, by, by Egypt, rather. Uh, and I say unto you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Let me just give you a quick summary then. Of the things that we've just looked at. So uh, on the 10th day of the month, 
they were to take this lamb. Uh, the lamb had to be a perfect male. And hopefully you can already see the, the type and shadow of Jesus here. And then on the 14th day of the month, they were to kill the lamb, typically between the evenings. Now, they did it in the evening, and that was often when the Jews would celebrate it. But they had a 24-hour window in which to do it. And that blood of, of the lamb was to be put on the lintels and doorposts, almost in a cross-like manner. And anybody who passed under the blood into the house would be safe from God's judgment upon the firstborn of the land. So in Leviticus again that these are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you should proclaim in their seasons. And the 14th day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. And then we're told again, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So again, that period of time, all of this is detailed very much in Exodus 12, uh, 12 through 20. Um, and then we go on uh, just to look at this statement. The whole period of time is going to be a, a seven day festival. In the first month, the 14th day of the month at even, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 1 and 20th day, so 21st day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. Whosoever eats that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations shall you eat unleavened bread. God is really serious about this. Anybody that doesn't comply with this again will be cut off from their from their nation, from the from the children of Israel. Really um, serious warnings. Now in Deuteronomy sixteen sixteen uh, we're told this uh, three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place he shall choose in the feast uh, of unleavened bread or the festival, that's the seven day period, and in the feast of weeks, that's again uh, Pentecost as we refer to it, and later in the year in the feast of tabernacles. Again, this, this another uh, period uh, of time, particularly seven days, eight days uh, period of time, and they shall uh, not appear before the Lord empty. So in other words, at these three occasions, so these seven days where Passover, unleavened bread and first fruits fall, uh, Pentecost, and then finally at the end of the year, they were to come to the Lord and notice in the place which he shall choose. And this is significant. And again, this is the Lord all the way back in the book of Exodus, uh, where these things were originally given and re again reiterated here in Deuteronomy, um, reminding the children of Israel they were to go to this special location, setting this all up for what would later take place with Jesus. Now, initially, the tabernacle was at Shiloh. That's where Eli ministered. That's where it was initially set up when they moved into the land. But later, David would move the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Uh, and then ultimately, that tabernacle was given way to the temple uh, that was built in the place and so at this location it would later be the temple all the the males of israel were to go uh, three times a year to offer these sacrifices now just to give you the context of this so on the 14th would be the feast of passover and that was a, a holy convocation uh, again work, certain work was uh, permitted during that time uh, then on the 15th was the feast of unleavened bread that was a high Sabbath or a Sabbath where no work was permitted at all. Um, and then the 21st, again, was another holy convocation, another Sabbath day where certain work was permitted, preparation of food, etc. Now, once again, as we said, the Feast of First Fruits could be as early as the 16th or as late as the 22nd, because it all depended on when the Passover fell. The 14th was a fixed date. Um, and then it depends on when the Sabbath, the Saturday was, and whenever the Saturday was, the day after that would be the Feast of Passover, a feast of first fruits. Okay, so 
Let's just ask the question then, because with a bit of historical background to, to kind of just uh, bring us up to speed, how does all of this fit in with Palm Sunday? That's the day that we're uh, remembering today. You know, how are all of these things connected? And we're going to try and put some uh, some bones on this right now. Now, in Scripture, uh, we find something that's rather strange. Um, and we see it right back at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, back in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, we find that there was a wedding uh, that Jesus is invited to at a place called uh, Cana or Cana in Galilee. Uh, Jesus, his mum, uh, according to scripture the, of the, from the fleshly point of view, was there. Um, and Jesus, we're told, uh, was called his disciples to the marriage. When they were, uh, wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. Uh, Mary recognizes that Jesus is not your, your average child, that he can do something about this problem. But Jesus says unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet come. It's an incredible statement. Jesus says that my time isn't yet. Now, of course, we know that Jesus goes on and does this incredible miracle. But he makes a really interesting point that my hour is not yet come. Now, just a simple process of deduction. That tells us that even at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was looking forward to a specific time. And guess what? That's the time we were commemorating today. We'll talk about it as we go through. Now, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter one, uh, we read about a leper that came to Jesus, begging Jesus to, to cleanse him. And Jesus cleans, cleanses this leper. I mean, what an amazing miracle. That should have been enough to convince the, the Jewish authorities that Jesus was the Messiah. Because although in the law provision had been made for what to do when a leper is cleansed, it had never happened. With the exception, of course, in the Old Testament of Naaman. But he wasn't a Jew. Uh, if you remember, he comes to um, Elisha and uh, and uh, he's healed. He dips himself seven times in the Jordan. But there was no Jew that had ever been healed of leprosy. And so this law, this, this law that had detailed the offering that was to be brought had never been brought into play. But this individual, he's healed from leprosy. He goes to the priests, which is exactly what Jesus tells him effectively to do, uh, to go and offer the offering that he should do. But Jesus says to him, don't tell anybody. Now, that seems rather strange because you'd think this was the, the real telltale sign that Jesus is the Messiah that now everybody should know. But Jesus says, don't say anything. Now, we find the same kind of thing occur in Mark's gospel. Again, uh, we're told that he healed many and so much they pressed upon him for to touch him. And as many as had plagues and unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him. And he cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now, once again, you'd think Jesus would be wanting to, to tell everybody. Well, we move to Mark's Gospel. You see the same thing again. Uh, we find this individual uh, whose uh, ears are opened and his tongue is loosed, his deaf and dumb individual. And verse 36 of Mark 7 tells us that Jesus said to the man, he said he charged them that they should tell no man. Now, of course, it didn't really work because we're told that the more he charged them, so much more a great deal. They publicized it. And naturally so. They were just amazed at what Jesus was doing in their midst. But Jesus was playing these things down. It's totally contrary to what we would expect to see. We go through Matthew's gospel again, another leper. We see this uh, this statement. This leprosy was cleansed in verse four. Jesus said unto him, see, they'll tell no man. 
In Matthew 9, uh, again, we read of this uh, two blind men that followed him crying out to him. Again, Jesus uh, heals them and says, see that no man know it. And then in Matthew, again, uh, these Pharisees that went out, held counsel against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from them uh, and a great multitude followed him and he healed them all. But notice once again that he charged them that they should not make him known. It's very easy to read these portions of scripture and miss this incredibly important situation that Jesus was playing this down. And then we get to the feeding of the 5,000 and we're told that they wanted to take him by force to make him king. Uh, this is this is staggering. And then we're told that he departed again into a mountain himself alone. He wouldn't allow them to make him king. Now, surely this is what we'd expect. I mean, uh, from, from what we read in Scripture, particularly the prophecies in Daniel and elsewhere, Jesus came to be king of the nations and king of Israel. And yet he refused to allow the people to make him king. In fact, he actually discouraged people from saying who he was. And really, from the, the human mindset, it's the worst PR tactic imaginable to play all these things down. But of course, Jesus wasn't into fame, but obedience. He'd come to do the will of his father. And all the things that we're seeing were leading to a specific conclusion. Uh, well, we carry on in Luke's Gospel in chapter 8. Uh, once again, uh, this uh, young girl is raised from the dead. Parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. And then in Matthew 16, once again, uh, Simon Peter then this time uh, is given this question. Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. But then verse 20 says, then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Uh, and they all lay in the synagogue. This is from Luke 4 now. Um, we're told they all uh, heard these things and were filled with wrath. And they rose up to thrust him out of the city. Now, this is incredible. We'll, we'll look at the location in just a second. But we find that they bring him to the brow of this great big hill. And there's a really, really sheer drop from this hill. Okay, there's this kind of on the edge of the, the valley of Megiddo, just outside Galilee. And we're told passing through them, or through the midst of them, he went his way. Could you imagine a situation where somebody is dragged to the top of the hill, they want to get rid of them and throw them over the edge, and then they're unable to do it? There's supernaturally, uh, supernatural protection for Jesus going on here. It's almost as if they get close and they just can't touch him. They're not able to. That's a picture you can see hopefully there of Mount Precipice, the location that this took place. Um, and hopefully you can get some kind of idea of the height. Uh, that's looking down on the Jezreel Valley. Uh, this is where... The armies of Antichrist will one day uh, meet and gather in preparation to try and launch a final assault against Israel before Jesus comes back. That doesn't really uh, give the kind of the intensity of the drop, but that is a really, really steep drop. If you look down the trees at the bottom, you get some idea of just how far that goes down. And, you know, if, if anybody had been pushed off of that, um, that would have been the end of them. There was no way you could survive a fall down there. But Jesus just miraculously walks through the midst of them. Now, we carry on because we then get some more interesting statements uh, in John chapter 7. We're told that the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now, this is getting closer to our our, our time that we, we want to get onto in a moment to talk about Palm Sunday. So this is the Tabernacles uh, before that occurs. Uh, so this would have been the autumn of the year. Um, and his brethren said, Depart hence, go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works thou doest. Uh, but Jesus goes on and says... But my time is not yet come. 
Now, it's easy to read that and miss the, the emphasis. Jesus isn't saying that my time won't come or can't come. He's saying it's not yet come. It's not the right time for me to reveal myself. So that begs the question, when? In John 7 again, uh, the same situation. The, the, the leaders of the, um, the Jews, the, the Pharisees and so on, the scribes, that they want to take Jesus. They sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him. And we're told because his hour was not yet come. Now they didn't know that his hour was not yet come, but they just weren't able to touch Jesus. They weren't able to in any way harm him or hurt him because God was supernaturally protecting and shielding Jesus for a very specific moment. And once again, in John chapter 8, Jesus in the temple this time, in the treasury as he taught in the temple, uh, we read that no man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. So once again, the same idea being presented. Jesus said unto them in John 8, 58, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And notice that they took up stones to cast him. But Jesus uh, hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them as so passed by. It's just it's a staggering situation. Now, we move on to Matthew 16. This is now in the autumn winter of AD 31. This is the year leading up to AD 32 when the crucifixion took place. And this is the autumn winter of the previous year. And up in Caesarea Philippi, it was a great kind of Roman resort. There were spas and all sorts of things going on there. Uh, it was a Roman holiday place, effectively. And Jesus is there with the disciples and he said unto them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now again, Jesus charges his disciples that they shall tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. You'd think he'd want to publicize this. But once again, it wasn't yet. It wasn't the right time. But then in verse 21, we get to a really interesting statement. Okay, And this is where the countdown begins. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now, once again, just notice that it's from this time forth. This was the key. This was the trigger. This was the moment that everything began to change. Jesus's mission, in a sense, changes from this point, And now it's all set about going down to Jerusalem. The final journey of Jesus really starts there at Caesarea Philippi. Hopefully uh, you'll see that on, on the map as you come up on your screens in just a second if it's not already. Um, but Jesus starts at Caesarea Philippi. Within a week of that, he goes to Mount Hermon, uh, where we see the transfiguration, and then down to Galilee, and from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So this now is Jesus' final journey. This is getting ready for that day, that moment. Matthew 17, we read about that trip to Mount Hermon. It says, after six days, Jesus, taking Peter, James, and John, his brother, brings them to a high mountain apart, was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun and his raiment as white as the light. Again, this high mountain, the Mount Hermon is actually the highest mountain in the whole region uh, in Israel. And uh, this is the mountain we believe that Jesus went to with his disciples. And we're told, behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Notice this. This is really significant. The topic of their conversation was of what was about to happen. The reason he was going to Jerusalem, the fulfillment of his ministry. He'd come to do the will of his father to give his life as a ransom for many. So the whole of this conversation with Moses and Elijah, it wasn't just a uh, just a great display for the disciples there was a purpose and they wanted to talk about the details and there was a reason why Moses and Elijah I believe were called why they were summoned in a sense to come speak from, from heaven where they've been residing with the Lord with God the Father to come now to speak with Jesus and Jesus I believe gives them a task a job to do uh, which we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks now as they start to travel down this journey they get to Galilee Jesus said unto them the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall kill him. The third day they shall be raised again. And we thought they were receding sorry. Yeah, you know, we often um sorrow when we don't understand that Jesus is in complete control. When we understand that he's in control, there's occasion, there's opportunity to rejoice. And the disciples here look on this as a tragedy. Of course, the crucifixion wasn't a tragedy. It was an achievement. It was what Jesus had come to do. But again, notice that it was the third day. Very specifically, they were told, Matthew 16, 21, uh, we find exactly the same thing. Again, a little bit further on in this journey, um, that from that time forth, Jesus, showed, Jesus began to show unto his disciples. Again, all that was to happen, it would be raised again the third day. Now, when we look at a, a timetable of Passion Week, uh, as it were, we know that Jesus rose on the third day. Well, before the third day, of course, we have the second day. Before the second day will be the first day. And then we have day zero, effectively. And then just plotting back uh, to take us down to our, uh, give us our kind of a week span here. Well, the crucifixion, we know if the Jesus rose on the third day, then the crucifixion had to take place on the day zero. Now, again, we know that the crucifixion took, so the resurrection took place on the first day of the week. That we also know was a Sunday. That means the day before that would have been a Saturday, the day before that Friday. And so very easily, amazingly the world has had so much uh, debate and so on about these details but really it's as simple as this and there's many many other details that show that Thursday is the only day these events could have taken place for a number of reasons uh, but you'll see the model play out in a moment as well which is yet further confirmation of these things so we find that Jesus came to do the will of the father he was looking forward to a specific hour and again, because of this, he didn't want the people to make him known before the right time. It was all about God's timing. But as the right time approaches, he now starts heading to Jerusalem. And guess what? We finally get to the hour. I hope you start to feel the suspense, the excitement here, because this is just, just quite riveting. If you'd imagine the, the situation and all that Jesus had gone through and the disciples starting to think that something's going on. And then we get to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 23 to 27, we read, Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. This is it. The hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. And verse 27 says, now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And no, but the response is given, Father, save me from this hour. Uh, but for this cause, I came unto this hour. It's very clear. We've reached a crescendo point. This is so significant. So, what day is this? When is this occurring? Well, it's no surprise that that was the evening before the triumphal entry, the day that we refer to as Palm Sunday. Jesus says, as he gets to the evening, 
before this event. Now, in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish calendar, the day begins in the evening. So effectively, as we get to this day, Jesus says, the hour has come. This is the moment. This is the day. This is what we've been looking forward to. And this is why Palm Sunday is so significant. And we read the details on the next day. So as the, the kind of the clock changes in our kind of mindset, uh, it's the same day for the Jews. Uh, but there's a, the, you go to bed in the, the evening, you wake up. This is on the next day as they woke up in the morning. Much people that would come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees. This is where we get the title Palm Sunday. And went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, we're told. But when Jesus glorified, they remembered uh, they that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things unto him. Of course, this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Again, which day? Palm Sunday. This was the day 500 or so years beforehand. Zechariah speaks of this day of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. He says he is just having salvation. Lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Well, again, as I said, Zechariah, 500 years records these details. Now, in Luke's gospel, we're given more information. It says it came to pass that when he was come nigh unto Bethpage and Bethany as the mount, uh, sorry, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go you into the village over against you in the which you are entering and you shall find a colt tied where on there uh, yet never a man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. This is exactly what Zechariah prophesied would happen. And if any man asks you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent their way uh, went, sorry, they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. It carries on, verse 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice. Uh, we're not told specifically why. Maybe they just got the intensity. Maybe some of them knew that prophecy from Zechariah and they recognized what was playing out before their eyes. But they start to rejoice and praise God. See, they recognize that God is doing something. There's something very special about this day. With a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now they're quoting Psalms. Uh, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But of course, some of the Pharisees, from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, let me just show you this uh, This rock that I'm holding is actually one of those stones. This was brought uh, back from Israel, sneakily in my bag. I'd probably got arrested if he found it, but I didn't. So here we are. Uh, and it just lives on my, my shelf here. Uh, this is one of the stones that didn't cry out. This was on that, that road down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem as Jesus traveled down that morning. And, you know, I, I've listened many, many times just to hear of it singing. But this is one of the stones that would have cried out. Now, I mean, that's not a flippant comment because all of creation, everything, every molecule, every atom, 
has been created by Jesus. He's the one that sustains all things and he can make them vibrate and make sounds and songs. We, we, we read of that, the, the heavens declaring the glory of God. And people have done studies about talking about the, the way that there's these kind of vibrations with, uh, uh, in space and the sound that they produce and so on. In their own way, they praise God. And I've got no doubt that this stone was very capable uh, of praising God in that situation. So this is that was one of the, well, the stones I thought was uh, worth just showing you that. Uh, and then we read, carrying on, verse 41. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou had known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they hid from their eyes. This is staggering. Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, he's weeping over Jerusalem, and says that if only you had known, at least in this thy day, this is the day that we've been looking forward to. This is what we were talking about Palm Sunday. This was the day they've been waiting for. This is the day that Jesus had been building to. When he said, my hour is not yet come, well, now the hour has come. This is the day. And he's saying, if you'd have known the significance of this day, but you don't, he says the things that belong to thy peace, now they're hid from thine eyes. Oh, this is a staggering statement. As, as a result of Israel not realizing, not recognizing what day this was, Jesus says that their blindness will come upon the nation. Now that's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, particularly in 11, it speaks about the blindness that is upon the, the eyes of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And this is where that begins because they didn't recognize the importance of the day. We're told the day shall come upon thee that thy enemies shall cast a trench uh, about thee. Speaking of the Romans, that would come in AD 70, encompass thee round about on every side, and shall even lay thee with, uh, even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not, notice this again, the time of thy visitation. So significant that they didn't recognize the one day in their entire history as a nation that the Messiah came to them. Now, the question, of course, is, well, how could they know? How were they supposed to know? Well, we'll come to that in just a second. But let me just again, just to recap. Jesus came to do the will of his father, to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't want to be made known throughout his incredible three and a half year ministry until one specific day. But on that day, Palm Sunday, he intentionally arranges the whole event. He sends the disciples to go and get the donkey. He rides into Jerusalem as a king. And by the way, typically the uh, when a king would come in, that we see it with Solomon and so on, they would come in and they would ride a donkey. Particularly if it was a time of peace, they'd be on a donkey. If there was a time of war, they'd be on a horse. And interestingly, when Jesus comes at the second coming, we see him riding again. But at the second coming, he's riding a white horse. And again, much to the disdain of the Jewish leaders that all these things take place, but Jesus arranges the whole event. He sets it all up. This whole ministry was centered on this one week. Again, so what was so special about this day? Why did Jesus say his hour had now come? Why did he allow himself to be worshipped as a Messiah, the Prince, which is exactly what they were doing on this day and only on this day? And why did Jesus rebuke the Jews for not knowing? What was so important that Jesus pronounces national blindness upon Israel because they missed the time of their visitation. Well, very quickly, I'm going to try and answer that. But just to mention again, that blindness has lasted some 1900 years or so. Well, to answer the question, we need to go back very quickly uh, into the book of Daniel. And there's a prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9. It's an incredible prophecy. 
Uh, it's uh, roughly about the year 537 this is given. Uh, Daniel had been praying. Uh, we see this, this time that the 70-year the captivity in Babylon is now ended. And Daniel is thinking about all that's going on back in Jerusalem. Daniel now an old man somewhere in the region of 80, 84 years old, aware that his countrymen have gone home to Israel, to Jerusalem, thinking, I wonder what it's like. I wonder if they're able to offer the sacrifices again. What's going on there? And so Daniel, as a result of this, uh, knowing that these some 50,000 Jews had returned home, still in Babylon, Daniel chapter 9, he starts to pray. Okay, he's just worried. Well, he's thinking about these things, about the captivity, about Jerusalem laying in ruins and so on. And so he starts to, to pray this prayer because he's aware that there's a second period, as prophesied by Jeremiah, uh, of judgment that had been decreed upon the nation as well. So in the midst of all this, Daniel sets his, his heart to pray. Now, just to give you the context of this, hopefully you can see there, there is two periods of uh, 70 years. The first one began in 606 BC. It's referred to by Jeremiah as the servitude of the nation, um, or this, this period of time. It's a 70-year period, and it ends with this decree of Cyrus, 537 BC, when this de- decree is given. There's 587 BC, there's a third siege of Jerusalem. This time, the actual city is destroyed. And that begins a period of time known as the desolations of Jerusalem. That ends with the decree of uh, Darius the Great in 518. So these two periods of 70 years, they, they don't start at the same time, they don't finish at the same time, but they're exactly 70 years. And there's a period, there's a 19-year gap between each of these periods. And that's significance for something else that plays out later prophetically, which we haven't got time for this morning. But Daniel then, as I said, sets his heart to pray. It's one of the most impassioned prayers in Scripture. And he quotes Solomon almost word for word from First Chronicles chapter 6, uh, 36 uh, to 39. And he starts by confessing the sins of his people and then interceding for the city. But partway through that prayer, he's interrupted, not a, a knock on the door, but by the angel Gabriel. I mean, that, that's not the kind of thing normally we expect when we pray. Maybe we should be, but, but Daniel is interrupted and Gabriel's there to give him this message. And the message that Gabriel brings is this. Seventy sevens are determined upon thy people. Now, I just need to clarify and explain the the sevens here is this word in the Hebrew Shabuim. Uh, and it means weeks of years. So literally it's 70 weeks of years okay so 70 times seven years so it's 490 years that's the period of time that gabriel is now is saying is going to apply to the nation of israel we see it a number of times this idea in scripture we have a week of days of course uh we see that throughout scripture a number of times but a week of weeks uh which becomes seven weeks uh, is referred to Leviticus 23, uh, speaks of that, uh, particularly that period of time up until the, from Passover to the, uh, Pentecost. There's a week of months. That's typically the religious calendar, seven months. Uh, and then we find this week of years, seven years. And there's a number of occasions we find that in scripture as well. Well, it's that last one that's the one that we're looking at here. So to make it very clear what we're talking about, there's 490 years are determined upon the Jews, thy people, and upon Jerusalem, the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And this is incredible, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, I think you'll agree that's not yet happened. So we're already aware that this prophecy is still being played out. But to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. 
Now, we haven't got time to go through the whole prophecy, but clearly this is the prophecy for Israel and Jerusalem to finish transgression, again, make an end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. The most holy place uh, being the temple, the, the, the uh, holy of holies, but also the most holy one, speaking of the Messiah. And then we're given this specific bit. This is where we're interested in. Know, therefore, and understand. I love these things in Scripture because sometimes we go, oh, I don't understand. It's too confusing. Well, you know what? Throughout Scripture, we are told repeatedly to know, to understand. God gives us things that we would know. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince. Well, this is staggering. Gabriel is telling Daniel, I'm going to tell you when the Messiah is coming. There's going to be a command that's given. And then you're going to have this period of time. There'll be a 49-year period, followed by a 434-year period. And once we get to the end of that, and the, the street and the wall is all going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, in troublous times, which we know from the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and so on, that is exactly what happened. That when we get to the end of that, the Messiah will come. So uh, these these incredible statements. It concludes with then a 483 period after which the Messiah will come. So Daniel is told exactly when the Messiah will come. This is amazing. So we get that command to restore and build Jerusalem. We know historically that, and also from scripture, uh, in uh, the book of uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, that this command is given by King Artaxerxes Longimanus on the 14th of March, 445 BC. In our calendar, it was the first of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. And then this period of 483 years after which the Messiah would come. There's no doubt as to who the Messiah would be because it would be the one who would come at that point. So the question is, how many days does this equate to? Well, let me just remind you what we're told in Isaiah 46 again, that God is outside of time. He declares the end from the beginning. This is really a statement of God's reputation. God doesn't deal in approximates. God is precise. And this is beautiful. But let me just add something else quickly here. When the Bible deals in prophetic years, we always find that they are 360 days long. So we see that in the time of the flood, uh, we have 30 day months reference there. Um, uh, Daniel, uh, a number of times speaks of this and this period of time that we refer to in Revelation as the tribulation is again, years are counted as 360 day years. Um, and, uh, these, the servitude of the nation, desolation of Jerusalem, as I just mentioned, and elsewhere. They all use 360 day years. Now, there's the conjecture, and we can maybe look at this some other time. It's quite fascinating that once the Earth was on a 360 day orbit, there's a lot of good science to support that. Um, as a result of that, certainly all the ancient calendars all based their years on 360 days. And it's also why we have 360 degrees in a circle and 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds in a minute. Um, so just, so just we need to understand that the Bible uses through this 360. And there's lots of historical references and uh, as to why this was the case. Ancient cultures had 360 gods they worshipped, one each day of the year and so on. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton uh, made this comment. He said, all nations before the just length of the solar year was known reckon months by the course of the moon and years by the return of winter and summer, spring and autumn. And in making calendars for their festivals, they reckoned 30 days to a lunar month and 12 lunar months to a year. 
taking the nearest round numbers. Whence came the division of the ecliptic into 360 degrees? In other words, when you look at the heavens and the stars, everything's divided up into effectively 360 degrees. The circle, of course, 360 degrees. This is where it comes from, because seemingly the Earth once had this 360-day uh, calendar orbit. So now we can do our calculation. Because we've got 483 years, this period of time, and we know that each of those years comprises of 360 days. So you've probably already jumped it to, to already. We can just simply do the maths and we can therefore work out that 360 days by 483 years is, I'm sure you've got, got there, 173,880 days. So what Daniel is being told is that from this going forth of the command, the moment that command's given, 173,880 days later, the Messiah would come. Now, this is recorded in Scripture. Every Jew had access to this. They had the ability to read this, to understand it, and to know when their Messiah was coming. So every Jew should have been aware of the day, Palm Sunday as we're referring to, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, because the exact fulfillment of that period of time, and there's various ways you can prove this, uh, historically there's various tools and things that are available uh, that can show this and categorically demonstrate that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 6th of April, AD 32, which is the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar. Did you hear what I just said? It's the 10th of the month that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. I mentioned this earlier, that 10th day being important. This is Palm Sunday. This is the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the only day that the Messiah was prophesied to come. On the one day that he'd planned and arranged and prepared for throughout his entire ministry, all those statements about my time has not yet come. Well, now on this very day, he says, my time is come. The hour is come. This is the moment. And this was the one day Jesus presents himself. Let me just summarize as we draw to a conclusion, because again, as part of the Passover celebration, they were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the first month. I just told you it was the 10th day that Jesus rode in. That's when they took a lamb. They received Jesus. They worshipped him. They laid these palm branches down on the 10th day of the month. That lamb had to be perfect and a male. Jesus was perfect. He was the sinless, perfect lamb of God. And again, of course, a male. And on the 14th day of the month, therefore, they were to kill the lamb between the evenings. So we'll look at the detail in a moment. And again, the blood to be put on the lintels and the doorposts to save those who were marked by that blood. Now looking there, hopefully you can see that on your screens. That is a, a plan, a map of what we refer to as a Passion Week. Okay, you've got, if you can see there on the Sunday, the Red Square, that's the triumphal entry. That's the 10th day of the month. And of course, they were to keep the lamb until the 14th day of the month, which was the Thursday in this week. And that's when Jesus was crucified, fulfilling this incredible model. The model that, that Paul says is the gospel, that Christ was uh, died for us according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures. Again, all these things being played out. So just to, to wrap things up for this morning. So in the evening, after the, the Sabbath, they couldn't travel during the Sabbath, but it gets to the evening. The new day begins in the Jewish calendar. So the 10th begins as it gets to sundown. They travel to Bethany, not a long journey from where they've been, and they have an evening meal with Lazarus and so on. And that's when Jesus makes his statement, my hour has come. The next day, again, the same day in the Jewish calendar, is the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's the 10th day of the month. <clears throat> then... We get to the evening and they travel out to Bethany again and they reside at Bethany for the evening. 
And then the next day, they travel back into Jerusalem. And the next day is when we see uh, they pass this fig tree um, that's not bearing fruit. And so it's cursed uh, and so on. And we see that played out in these things. We get to the Tuesday and that's when Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse, as it's sometimes referred to, the bit we have in Matthew 24 and so on, where Jesus, just a couple of days now before he knew he was going to be offered as a sacrifice of sin, gives us the detail of all that's going to happen with the end times. Again, a really important passage in Matthew 24 to understand these things. And Luke echoes it and so does Mark as well. And then we get to the evening of what would be the Tuesday evening of that week. It's the next day in the Jewish calendar. And we get to this meal that they're having where this woman pours this costly perfume over Jesus' feet. This woman is, of course, Mary, we know, pours this very expensive, very, very expensive perfume over Jesus' feet. And Judas is outraged. We read this in John chapter 12. Mary took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And then said one of his disciples, it happened to be Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who should betray him. Why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put in it. So he's not bothered about where the money really goes other than he wanted it himself. He doesn't want to, to see this, this extravagance because he could have had that money is what he's thinking. And that brings us then to the, the Wednesday. This is the day before the crucifixion. In the Jewish mindset, this is now the day of preparation as we get ready for the Passover. Okay. Or, or leading as it gets to the evening, it becomes the day of, of preparation. So we read now in Luke's Gospel 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. This is when that feast starts. As it gets to the evening of this day, of the Wednesday in the evening, this is when that seven-day period will begin of unleavened bread. Verse 8 carries on. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, uh, when you are entering into the city, there shall be a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master says unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Now notice that Jesus ate the Passover. Some have suggested that it was just another meal because the Passover wasn't until the next day. But you've already seen that actually the Passover began in the evening and they had a 24-hour window, as we've already said, of when they could celebrate this thing. And so they go and prepare this meal and jesus said you should find a large upper room furnished they make ready and they went and found as he had said unto them and there they made ready the passover so as we get to what is the wednesday evening that's when jesus celebrates this passover with his disciples and then of course it's still the same day in the jewish calendar and you can see it on the screen it's the same same color to kind of help you to see uh, as we get onto the 14th which is the day that the, the lamb had to be offered according to the Passover. As we get to this point, that's when Jesus then is crucified. Now, on Thursday, we're going to pick up from this point. We're going to have our, our communion on Thursday. We're going to look at this Passover supper that Jesus has with the disciples. And we're going to go from that point uh, all the way out to Gethsemane as we carry on our study. Let's uh, just bow our hearts, shall we, and just close in prayer. Well, Father, thank you so much for these things. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be reminded today of the significance of these events. Lord, how you had 
expected your people, who desired your people to know the day in which you were coming. Oh, Father, please help us as your church not to be ignorant of the times in which we live. Lord, not to be ignorant of prophecy. Lord, to help us to recognize the signs of the times that are all around us, warning us, reminding us, comforting us that you will be coming soon. Oh, Lord, just please strengthen us with these things. Encourage our hearts, we pray, that knowing that you are in complete control of all things from the end to the beginning. Lord, we just thank you and pray you bless the time of fellowship now, but Lord, also just bless us through these weeks and these days ahead. Just keep us close to you, growing in knowledge and grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.